Welcome to School of Movies. Hercules. Also, people keep asking me if I'm aware of Lindsay Ellis on YouTube, who also does super in-depth stuff on Disney. Of course I'm aware of her. I wasn't back in 2014 when I recorded these shows, but I am now and have been for a few years. She may or may not be aware of us, but you guys can help with that. However, for the few of you folks who haven't heard of her, start with the Hunchback video. She actually went to Paris to talk about it and goes way into the original text. In fact, a lot of you were letting Lindsay Ellis do your homework for you when I asked book lovers why the ending of the original Victor Hugo novel matters to them and might still work today. I recognize her handwriting, guys. You have to show your workings out. This episode was recorded in 2014, when James Woods was being a dick on Twitter, but not quite so much of a massive bellend as he is right now. So for all our ire towards James Woods there, just add a few extra noughts to the end. Also, listen carefully to this trailer. Imagine being a family audience watching in 1996 and thinking, I wonder what the next Disney's going to be. Like, how huge and how much of an event these movies were that they then hung on trailers with this tone. What you folks need is a hero. Yeah? And who are you? I happen to be a hero. Coming summer 1997. Get your sword! The hero is only as good as his weapon. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Hercules. Hercules. The myth. I'm an action figure. The movie. Two thumbs way, way up. Zero the hero in no time back. Zero the hero just like that. Is this kid gonna mess up my hostile takeover bit or what? From the creators of Aladdin and the Little Mermaid. I'm telling you. Wacko. Comes a cast of wildly imaginative new characters. The spirited and independent Meg. Aren't you a damsel in distress? I can handle this. Have a nice day. Philotides. Call me Phil. Herc's personal trainer. Don't let you guard down because of a pair of big blue eyes. Hades, lord of the underworld. Hey, mention my name. We got a doom with a view. And his henchmen, Pain and Panic. We are words! Next summer. Get ready to rumble! It's Disney's 35th all-new animated feature. The legendary story of Hercules. We dance, we kiss, we schmooze, we carry on, we go home happy. What do you say? Welcome back to our long-running series of podcasts covering the rich history of Disney's theatrical animation. Our running mate for the series remains Mr. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello there. Hello, Dan. By 1997, Disney had covered in this new animation renaissance European fairy tales, the Arabian Nights, Shakespeare with lions, American history, of a sort, and revolutionary French literature. At this stage, they looked out into the rest of the world for their folklore and how strong messages within it could be applied to the values of Western audiences. In the case of Hercules, this ancient Greek myth forms the basis for what has ended up as the most iconic superhero story of the 20th century and beyond. 
You don't even need to scratch the surface all that deep to see the similarities between this blueprint of a hero's journey and that of comic book heroes Superman, Thor and others. But rather than playing it straight, they went for a mix of humour based on a pre-assumed inside knowledge of Greek mythology on the part of their audience and the story of an affable, gifted boxing rookie and his washed-up cantankerous trainer, complete with sly digs at the transformative nature of fame and merchandising. Danny DeVito and James Woods headlined an enthusiastic cast complete with a smart, sharply humorous heroine and a blazing Prince of Darkness for the villain. This was directed by John Musker and Ron Clements, who had already achieved brilliant success with The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. Alan Menken returned once again to score a rollicking and witticism-filled gospel soundtrack resplendent of the work of Howard Ashman. How could it fail? Sadly, the public did not take to this uneven blend. It made $252 million on an $85 million budget relative to The Lion King, which has made close to a billion over time, and on just over half the budget. The fact that it took 16 years to get an anamorphically justified home release of Hercules released, complete with a 10-minute promotional video made around the same time as the film came out, as the only extra is emblematic of the size of rug that the House of Mouse would like this swept under to better showcase its greater successes. Much to my frustration, this is one of my favourites. To explain the anamorphically justified thing, the original DVD of Hercules was taken from the Laserdisc print, which, as was tradition with Laserdiscs, displayed the widescreen picture within a black frame, so it's like you're watching a little boxy version of Hercules inside a big swathe of grey charcoal black inside your TV. It looks horrible by today's standards. Like I said, it took 16 years from 1997 to 2013 for them to go, maybe we should do it again and, and make it look good. After the critical and financial success of Aladdin, directors Ron Clements and John Musker developed Treasure Planet up until the fall of 1993, which was originally pitched by Ron Clements in 1985, so like Black Cauldron time, before Musker pitched The Little Mermaid. Wasn't that around the time they started pitching Pocahontas? Uh... Pocahontas was underway at the same time as Lion King, wasn't it? Yeah, no, but they they pitched Pocahontas ages beforehand. I think she got greenlit immediately. Oh, maybe it was later then because they they were like, oh yes, Pocahontas is going to do great. Did these uh, guys pitch Pocahontas or was that somebody else? No, no, it I might have been the same day. I mean, though. just Disney in general. Oh right, so right. Yeah, it probably was around that same first, time yeah. though. According to Clements, Jeffrey Katzenberg, our mate Jeff, who was the chief of Walt Disney Studios at the time, just wasn't interested in the idea of. Uh, this was Treasure Planet, and likewise disapproved of the project again. However, Katzenberg struck a deal with the directors to produce another commercially viable film so he would greenlight Treasure Planet, or not produce Treasure at all. Turning down adaptation proposals for Don Quixote, The Odyssey, and Around the World in 80 Days. I'd really like to have seen them as well. The directors were notified of animator Joel Hader's pitch for a Hercules feature. We thought it would be our opportunity to do a superhero movie, Musker said. So Ron and I being comic book fans... The studio liked us moving on to that project, and so we did. Writing the role of Philoctetes, Musker and Clements envisioned Danny DeVito in the role. However, DeVito declined to audition, so Ed Asner, Ernest Borgnine, and Dick Latessa were brought in to read for the part. After Red Buttons had auditioned, he left stating, I know what you're going to do. You're going to give this part to Danny DeVito. I don't know if he sounds like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shortly after the directors and producer Alice Dewey approached DeVito at a pasta lunch during the filming of Matilda, where DeVito signed on for the role. See, I'm getting kind of a Get Shorty feeling about this. If you've ever seen Get Shorty, where they're trying to sit, sign on Martin Weir, the casting of Hades proved to be very problematic. I had to put this in for Musco and Clements. When DeVito asked the directors who he had in mind to play Hades, Musco and Clements responded by saying they hadn't selected an appropriate actor. In response, DeVito blurted, Why don't you ask Jack? Nicholson? Nicholson. Ooh. After DeVito notified Nicholson of the project the next week, the studio was willing to pay Nicholson $500,000 for the role. We make mistakes, they call it evil. When God makes mistakes, they call it nature. <laughs> but Nicholson demanded roughly a paycheck of 10 to $15 million, plus a 50% cut of all proceeds from Hades' merchandise. Unwilling to share merchandising proceeds with the actor, Disney came back with a counteroffer that was significantly less than what Nicholson had asked for. Therefore, Nicholson decided to pass on the project. Disappointed by the lack of Nicholson, Clements and Musker eventually selected John Lithgow as Hades in Fall of 94. I will eat your face! Oh, Off- he'd have been good, though. He kind of was. After nine months of trying to make Lithgow's portrayal of Hades work... As in, like, he was the guy doing all the Hades stuff for ages, and then they switched him out. Lithgow was released from the role in August 95. According to John Musker, Ron Silver, Ron Silver, James Coburn, Kevin Spacey, he would also have been brilliant. I swear, if I hadn't promised Mother on her deathbed that I wouldn't kill you, I would kill you. And believe me, no one appreciates that more than I do. Shut up! He would have been less cool now, but then again, so is James Woods. Phil Hartman. Mrs. Simpson claims that she forgot she was carrying that bottle of delicious bourbon, brownest of the brown liquors. So tempting. What's that? You want me to drink you, but I'm in the middle of a trial. Excuse me. And Rod Steiger arrived to the Disney Studios to read as Hades. When they invited James Woods to read for the part, the filmmakers were surprised by Woods' interpretation, and Woods was hired in October 95. I can't believe this guy. I throw everything I've got at him, and it doesn't even... What are those? Um, I don't know. I, I thought they looked kind of dashing. I've got 24 hours to get rid of this bozo. Well, the entire scheme I've been setting up for 18 years goes up in smoke, and you are wearing his merchandise! And finally, design. The character design was based on Greek statues and artist Gerald Scarf's work in Pink Floyd, The Wall. So this guy Scarf was like a, a British like newspaper caricature artist. Each major character in Hercules had a supervising animator. Andreas Deja, the supervising animator for Hercules, commented that the animation crew he worked to animate Hercules was the largest he ever worked with. He previously worked on other characters like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast, Jafar in Aladdin and Scar in The Lion King, with about four animators on his crew, but he had a team of 12 to 13 for Hercules. Given Deja had worked with three villains before he was first offered Hades, but asked to animate Hercules instead, I know it would be more difficult and more challenging, but I just needed that experience to have that in my repertoire. 
The film opens with the voice of another man whom history looks back on with mixed feelings. Uh, Charlton Heston, long time from my cold dead hand proponent of the NRA. But it then proceeds to lay its gospel style right on the table so that you know what to expect from the rest of the film. And the intro sequence this reminds me most of is Little Shop of Horrors by Howard Ashman. Long ago, in the faraway land of ancient Greece, there was a golden age of powerful gods and extraordinary heroes. And the greatest and strongest of all these heroes was the mighty Hercules. But what is the measure of a true hero now? That is what our story is. Will you listen to him? He's making this story sound like some Greek tragedy. Lighten up, dude. We'll take it from here, darling. You go, girl. We are the muses, goddesses of the arts, and proclaimers of heroes. Heroes like Hercules. Honey, you mean Hercules. I'd like to make some sweet music. Our story actually begins long before Hercules, many eons ago. Back when the world was new, the planet Earth was down on its luck, and everywhere gigantic. It was a nasty place. There was a mess wherever you stepped. Where chaos reigned and earthquakes and volcanoes never slept. So, Dan, give us an overview of what you think of Hercules, because I've never picked your brain on this one, and almost no... I, I never really meet people who are into this, so... Well, I... Hercules was one of my few blind spots growing up, because I never ended up catching it uh, when it initially came out. I only saw it, I think, for the first time maybe five years ago, and as such, I didn't necessarily have the nostalgia tied to it inherently just from memories. Watching it now, I do actually like it quite a bit. I wouldn't rank it as one of my favorite ones. I think there's a certain level of character drama that I feel could have been pulled out of this a little bit more. There's having a Hercules' ultimate goal being 
rather kind of large and nebulous of become a hero. Yeah. I think it leaves a lot of smaller scene to scene uh, interactions a little bit devoid of drama because it's such a large big thing and it's harder to pinpoint exactly what is what is the thing he wants right now and the thing standing in his and the what's standing in his way. It I is it first it little, and foremost a comedy. It, it is, and but, which I mean, is, you could say okay that about Guardians well. of the Galaxy, but somehow that manages to balance uh, the, the the epicness of it with the humanity. For sure, and and I think. I mean, the, the film most similar to this in Disney's repertoire, I would say, is Aladdin. Mm, and mm. and yeah, and Aladdin is definitely leans much more in the comedy as well. In the end, I think this is a very enjoyable, quite strong Disney Renaissance film. I feel like at this point, Disney's uh, Broadway formula, you're it's starting to wear, not necessarily wear thin, but you're definitely starting to feel it, that they've kind of settled into a holding pattern at this point. Yeah. But they've got, a, and they've got a few different types of Disney Broadway film they'll make. They've got the Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback, Pocahontas sort of type. They've got serious the, sweeping romantic drama with right. uh, with some comedy. Right. They've got the Aladdin, Hercules, more comedy type, and then they've got the occasional weird thing like Lion King that and then I guess Mulan that just sort of is a sort of doing kind of its own thing. But I think at this point, even though I'm not necessarily tired of it, I can imagine that a lot of people in the audience might have started to grow tired of it especially because by this point toy story had come out and mm, mm. and they people had been shown something very different from what everyone was starting to associate with disney as the disney film tropes and cliches you could make uh, a pretty good parody of the disney 90s formula around about this time like it, 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 there'd be enough beats that you could hit that everyone would go yep nailed it yeah, exactly. I mean, at this point, it was Disney tropes were known enough that the Pixar guys could look at it and like on paper and say, here are the specific things we do not want to do, most of which were what yeah. the Disney films were doing at the time. So even though like a lot of these films are still beloved and, every, and, and really fantastic in their own right, you can tell that by this point, people had started to kind of get the idea of what they were going to get when they went to see a Disney film. And... I wouldn't say that this film and, and not even necessarily Mulan would have really shaken them out of that, even though I think they these films have, in their smaller ways, they are bringing new stuff to the table every time. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I do... It's not do changing really like the game like, uh, like Little Mermaid and uh, Beauty and the Beast changed what had come before. Right, and it's not coming in like... Lilo and Stitch is completely different yeah. from anything that Disney had been doing, maybe, period, up until that point. And so that that is... That's a major change compared to the smaller changes we're seeing in these films here. Technically, Dinosaur I, is really different to what had come before. Uh, I was trying not to think <laughs> that movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do like this film a lot. It's not one of my favorites of the Renaissance, but I do enjoy it a great There's a lot of individual parts of it that I adore. Yeah. James Woods is probably half of them. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. I, I, I couldn't get over how... Um, engaged I was still with Hades uh, in terms of his every single little tiny word I, I memorized the nuances of it he's uh, a really splendid version of uh, uh, effectively he's playing the devil as the uh, the western audiences know him even though the analog isn't exactly one to one with the, the Greek version of Hades they made that Hades more like our devil but they played him like this frustrated businessman who's been muscled out of a, uh, a partnership early on in a uh, what turned out to be a very lucrative deal, and he's just sitting on all this bitterness. 
If there's one god you don't want to get steamed up, it's Hades. Cause he had an evil plan. He ran the underworld. But thought the dead were dull and uncool. He was as mean as he was ruthless. And that's the gospel truth. He had a plan to shake things up. And that's the gospel truth. Oh, he, he completely steals the show, honestly, yeah. in every scene he's in because that sleazy salesman angle is such a clever brilliant way to go about it and yeah. so perfectly suited to what james woods does he basically just has to amp himself up yeah and it and that kind of performance lends itself so well to animation as well and kudos to nick ranieri because i think that's maybe his finest work at the disney company as an animator like lumiere and miko are both excellent but this is such a great character and he and he really brought it he kind of reminds me of Mark Hamill's Joker and in turn of the chief blue meanie from Yellow Submarine and just in terms of uh, he tries to remain in charge but his frustration gets the better of him I just love his schmoozy kind of <laughs> like <laughs> he's trying yeah. he has a sleazy kind of way of he's, he's not necessarily being the kind of devil who is collected and all together and orchestrating this large Khan and completely in control of it and they it, he's not Ursula necessarily mm, like mm. Ursula entirely knows that she's wrapping Ariel around her finger but she's not wheeling and dealing she's she's being very precise and she's very much in control whereas James Woods does not feel in control yeah of any of these situations he's just desperately trying to trying to play nice trying to grin trying to sort Smooth. of charm <laughs> to charm his way in yeah. to the hearts of whoever he's talking yeah. to and so, it, yeah he's not very good as a, he's not like skeletal like totally <laughs> hapless but he has that um well he's been throwing heavies at hercules for years and for some reason it's like you know that the, the whole if you know your 12 tasks of hercules Okay, so here's some mythology for you folks. The 12 tasks of, or, or labours of Hercules, technically would have taken place after this film, because driven mad by Hera, Queen of the Gods, that's Zeus's wife, the one who's so fond of him when he was a kid, because she wasn't actually his mother in the original legend, Hercules slew his son, daughter, and wife, Megara. Yeah. I remember in 97 thinking, oh, it's so sad that Hercules is going to go mad and accidentally kill his wife, Megara, later on. No, why am I applying this original mythology to the Disney version? That This is a story where that doesn't and couldn't happen. So it's a full-on God of War situation. It's like, my dead family! But rather than going on a roaring rampage of revenge like Kratos to basically kill Hera for uh, betraying him, since Hercules was the product of a union twixt Zeus and Alcmene, who was uh, his mum in the film. She was the wife of Amphetrion. Uh, basically, Zeus visited Alcmene disguised as Amphetrion, slept with her, thereby conceiving Hercules. In the movie, they turn them into Ma and Pa Kent, which, you know, kids can get with, because it doesn't involve rape through deception. So Hera, Hera sends him mad and tricks him into killing his wife and children, after which he deeply regrets his actions. 
and he's purified by King Thespius, then travels to Delphi to inquire how he could atone for his actions. That's uh, uh, the Oracle. I think he even like mentions in the film that he uh, sees the Oracle at Delphi. And for all you fans of movies, Delphi was where that Oracle was in 300. Remember that? That poor girl who was being horribly abused by the uh, E4s, those twisted leprous priests. Yeah, it's uh, subtle, Zach. Cheers for that one. So yeah, the Oracle of Delphi advised him to go to Tyrion's and serve his cousin, King... Oh boy. Eurystheus for 12 years, performing whatever labours Eurystheus might set him. In return, he'd be rewarded with immortality. So Eurystheus said, Number one, slay the Nemean lion, which he does in the movie. It's, uh, I believe it's Scar. Number two, slay the nine-headed Laonian Hydra, which he also does in the film. Uh, number three, capture the hmm, Cyrenian hind. So that's a deer, a female deer. Number four, capture the Erymanthian boar. I believe that was replicated in a brief moment in the film. Though I believe he shoots it with an arrow between the eyes. And then they eat it. Number five, clean the Algian stables in a single day. So basically, enormous amounts of horse poo. Gotta get it all out of the way. He's basically just being sent off to do odd jobs. Number six, slay the Stiphamphalian birds. Again, he takes down one big bird and puts it in a cage in the Disney movie, which uh, is a good stand-in for that. Although I always thought that was a harpy. Number seven, capture the Cretan bull, which is not the same as the Cretan minotaur, which uh, happened apparently later. Uh, he was taken on by Theseus. Number eight, steal the mares of Diomedes. So that's horse rustling. Uh, number nine, obtain the girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons. And therein lies a Wonder Woman tale. You will train her harder than any Amazon before her. Five times harder. Ten times harder. Until she is better than even you. But she must never know the truth about what she is or how she came to be. And actually, thinking about it, Wonder Woman is a really, really good version of this story. And number ten, obtain the cattle of the monster Gerion. So, cattle rustling. Number 11, steal the apples of the Hesperides. And number 12, capture and bring back Cerberus, which again, he kind of does at the end of the Disney film. Apparently, Hercules found Hades and asked permission to bring Cerberus to the surface, which Hades agreed to if Hercules could subdue the beast without using weapons. Hercules overpowered Cerberus with his hands and slung the beast over his back, carried Cerberus out of the underworld through a cavern entrance and brought it to Eurystheus. Eurystheus begged Hercules to return Cerberus to the underworld, offering in return to release him from any further labours. After completing the twelve labours, one tradition says Hercules joined Jason and the Argonauts on the quest for the Golden Fleece. That would have been a crossover. Cinematic Universe, Disney. However, Herodotus disputed this and denied Hercules ever sailed with the Argonauts. So basically, it would appear that the, the end of this story is Hercules finishes his twelve tasks and he's kind of a demigod. Feels like the Greeks left the story open there so that they could do sequels. So back to Hades and his takeover bid. Either way, most of the, the, the things that get thrown at him, I think he sort of throws a minotaur and a, uh, a, a gorgon at him as well, are heavies. And, and this guy's built... And he is designed to punch things out of the air. So it's, it's almost like he's not yet thought about employing something a bit more surreptitious. Even when Hades is trying to 
be charming and trying to like sleaze his way into a deal, the instant something stops stops going his way, he pretty much just blows up and loses control of the situation. Yeah. Then desperately quickly tries to get it back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, oh, he's, uh, just, the, he's so fun to watch. And his hair being on fire makes him extremely uh, lively as a, as a on-screen character as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I take Hades out of this film and suddenly it's a lot less interesting. Agreed. Completely. Young Herc was mortal now But since he did not drink the last drop he still retains his godlike strength, so thank his lucky son. But Zeus and Hera wept because their son could never come home. They'd have to watch their precious baby grow up from afar. Though Hades hard The main appeal for Hercules for me is the Greek mythology angle because that's something that I have been interested in since I was so small that my uh, interest in fairy tales jumped very quickly to Greek mythology and Roman mythology and kind of expanded onto various different types. But that uh, using the existing framework um, and telling an existing story but very much making it their own is something that Disney have done with varying degrees of success. But as Alex said, this is one of the ones that, for me, works incredibly well. And it's more than a little disappointing that it didn't do better than it did. Is Hercules uh, the actual original Greek myth? Is that one that you're fairly familiar with? Uh, Well, it's uh, relatively so. I mean, I think most of what I uh, had a tendency to read was sort of... um, encyclopedias and um, like lists of gods and correspondences and you know what who was in charge of what um, what area and uh, that kind of thing but the I think the essence of it that that whole idea of making it into a superhero story because um, I, I kind of firmly believe that for the modern secular generation, comic books are basically our mythology that's that's our pantheon those heroes those are our gods and 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 you can um marry them up quite easily with the various symbolic representations of of deity that the old mythologies have woven amongst them and they're not really i think the essence of it is that they're they're much easier to take as literature and they're much easier to take as stories because they're not really presented as gods in the same way that sort of the the monotheistic patriarchal religions tend to present god if you see what i mean they're they're very much uh, the extent to which they are not human is just pretty much they're very strong and can't be killed 
they still have all these flaws. They still have all these um, very human interactions with each other. Um, I mean, one thing that amuses me slightly about the uh, the way they've presented this story is that they've obviously had to Disneyfy um, Hercules, or technically speaking, he should really have been Heracles. Heracles is, was his Greek name. Hercules was his Roman name, but the, the oh. Hercules was much more um, well known, I think, through. Um, uh, throughout Western understanding, and I mean, there's even a parallel between um, uh, the, his whole story and Samson mm. in the Bible. But I, I, there's something I want to mention about that when we talk about Meg, so we'll, we'll go into that later. Given that in the original myth, he, part of the the point of his um, sort of semi-divine status is that he's not a full god. He's not um, uh, Hera's son. He's one of Zeus's many illegitimate offspring. Um, and obviously they've kind of wrapped it all up in a much more family values type bow for this, which is completely understandable. It's Disney. You can't really start with, you know son we'd rather not talk about hidden off somewhere in the forest and, yeah. and other things going on and on Olympus that are really nothing to do with him so uh, it, it does kind of make sense but the his origins in terms of uh, being on this um, separate planet the, the connection with Superman is very very clear um, particularly the way they've worked it in this Hera comes out looking a whole lot better in this version. Oh, yeah. She does, yeah. The original wicked stepmother. Hera gets some really, really rough stick in some of the original myths. She, a lot of the time, she's basically included in order to be just the unpleasant, jealous wife. Um, and especially the way that it gets interpreted in a lot of, um, of retellings. But uh, she is a much kinder and more understanding person in this. <laughs> The artwork and the handoff to the muses for establishing tone. Yes. That's a pretty big initial things you'll notice. That angle, actually, you know what we've talked about, about the practice of um, every intro being a different method of telling a story. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got in the older Disney's, you've got those incredibly intricate jeweled books opening up. And then in Beauty and the Beast, you've got those gorgeous stained glass windows telling the introduction of the story. And here they've gone to this... Uh, stylized artwork on the vases and the pots, which is of course an intricate part of how Greek mythology was told. So it fits really beautifully into this this story and gives you immediately this setting of um, not necessarily um, a completely separate place, because I think the fact that they have culturally made it all extremely understandable for a modern audience, but it still has that sense of, you know, thousands of years ago, just because of the way they've introduced it and making it all this, these um, visual images. Mm. Also, the the muses themselves, because it's gospel, they've kind of used them as a conduit between uh, Greek mythology and biblical epic. Mm. So obviously, Charlton Heston was a very carefully chosen for that one, so that you're sort of like you're in biblical tales territory but you know the the gospel singing is usually about heavenly events and it's it's it kind of eases you into the the uh, the idea of that um appealing to western audiences as, as an analog for their mythology that's right which as i was just saying is that there is a big difference between how ancient mythology and and um, gods are presented and how that's presented in more modern religions that it's the it, it the emphasis is on the human aspect rather than the uh, it, the 
all-powerful aspect. I have often dreamed of a far-off place where a great warm welcome will be waiting for me where the crowds will cheer when they see my face and a voice keeps saying this is where I'm meant to be If I can be strong, I know every mile will be worth my while. I would go most anywhere to feel like I belong. One thing that hadn't struck me until we started reviewing all of these. Um, how this entire film is an enormous, stylistic, sarcastic wink at the pastoral symphony from Fantasia. Sarcastic, yes, but I think there's an awful lot of love for it there as well. Yeah. They definitely referred to it frequently in the design. Yeah. Well, the cherubs turn up in, a, in like entirely in um, Olympus. Also, I think, isn't Dionysus looks exactly like Bacchus does in that? He really does. Uh, he's, he's very similar, yeah. I think they, they haven't made him quite as um, as comical, but he has the, the big bulbous nose and the incredibly round shape. And I think at one point towards the end, he opens a bottle of champagne and kind of pours it all over mm. um, somebody champagne. in the same manner as Bacchus does with the, um, with the jugs of wine. So, yeah. Uh, actually, speaking of which, which other gods did you spot in this crowd? Oh, so many, so many gods. Hang on, I have a list. I am on my way. I can go the distance. I don't care how far. Somehow I'll be strong. I know every mile will be worth my while. I would go most anywhere to find where I belong. Because every time this plays through, I'm always trying to um, work out how many of them I can spot. I was very pleased that they managed to get the um, the, the central 12 of the, the Greek pantheon in there. Uh, but we've got, obviously, Zeus, uh, Hera, Hades. You've got um, Aphrodite, tall and slender and clad entirely in pink. Um, and uh, Eros is seen at one point, uh, her son, sitting on a cloud um, mm. with his uh, his bow and arrow in hand and there's a, a young lady on a plinth next to him I he's literally put time, on a pedestal well yeah exactly <laughs> I mean at the time I thought that it was um, Psyche. Uh, Psyche which is his uh, his partner um, but I think there may also be a reference to Galatea there as well who was a, a statue that was carved and then came to life um, you've got uh, Demeter the goddess of the harvest who's very round and green and has a huge cornucopia in her hand um, there's a, a figure that you only see from the back who looks like um, Aquarius the water bearer from the um, astrology images which is not strictly speaking a goddess but uh, close enough um, you've got Hermes, who's the messenger god running around telling everybody what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, Dionysus we've already mentioned, very similar to uh, in look to the Pastoral Symphony Similar. Bacchus. I've, I've just looked them both up on Google Images. Are they exactly Dionysus the same? is a pink version of Bacchus. Okay, then. <laughs> they have a slightly different hat. Just It's the same. It's an arrangement of leaves versus yeah. grapes on a vine, but it's, it's they've literally just made him pink. 
I think um, in the original uh, versions, Bacchus is a little bit more ridiculous than um, Dionysus, who's a bit more formal. But hmm. anyway, that's a, a, an older well, uh, interpretation. Well, they both look completely sloshed. It, oh, in this, in the way they've done it in, for Disney, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've got Apollo, um, who, it, weirdly enough, because it was tricky to pick him out because he's very... He's like a dark blue, isn't he? Yeah. Um, almost he sky coloured, I suppose. But crest on his. That's uh, right. Yeah. The um, um, the horsetail pennant on his helmet is um, very glowing yellow, and he uh, drives the fiery chariot about halfway through. These guys have um, lost about six seconds against Kratos, by the way. <laughs> True. <Imagine> the massacre. <laughs> he would carve them into pastel pieces <laughs> and rearrange them into skittles. Um, you've got uh, Athena who has uh, the owl on her shoulder. Um, you've got Ares, who is entirely red and looks cross all the time. And has an ill-fitting helmet. Indeed. He's rather rotund, wasn't he, for a god of war, but hey. Did, um, did you mention Hephaestus, the blacksmith? Who makes Hephaestus, I was just about bolts. to come to. Yeah, the, um, he makes um, the lightning bolts later on. Yeah. Um, Poseidon's in there as well. Um, and then, obviously, you've got the Fates. Uh, you've got a reference to the Titans. You've got... Uh, Narcissus. Uh, yes, Orpheus gets a mention. Yeah, Narcissus. Did Narcissus actually get a place on Olympus? Um, just no. for being vain? No, no, no. What happened with Narcissus? Um, he basically uh, saw his own reflection in the pool and thought it was a beautiful girl and refused to leave until she came out and and got off with him obviously because it was his own reflection and he died of starvation Um, I think he ended up in uh, the Elysian Fields which is more than he deserved frankly Um, you've got uh, Pegasus so much of the humour of this requires you to know a bit about Greek mythology which is a gamble Till I find my hero's welcome right Where I belong I think, in all honesty, if you knew only as much as you'd managed to pick up from Clash of the Titans... (laughs) you could probably get by. Mm-hmm. And, and it would well, still you make by, you laugh. But there's going to be... I mean, like, I was the only person, the only person in my audience who, uh, when uh, pain or panic yells out, somebody call IXII, I laughed. I almost wanted to shout at the audience, oh, come on! <laughs> well, there, there's a difference between having a passing understanding of ancient mythology and a passing understanding of Roman numerals, though. Okay. Maybe not. But yeah, I mean, the, because so few of them are named, ultimately, um, if you it's were more familiar... I know. It's just that there's a lot well, of throwaway lines, which a lot of people may have felt, oh, that's over my head. Yeah. And I think as well, if you combine that with the fact that a lot of the actors talk very quickly, yeah. um, there is a sense of if you're not this degree of smart, you're not going to get this, with, which may possibly be why it didn't take more than it did. You must be this smart to write the <laughs> 
Oh dear. Um, so, and then you get um, further down the line, you get various other um, heroes. You've, obviously, there's Philoctetes. Um, you've got Adi- he mentions Odysseus, Perseus, Theseus, Lovius, um, Achilles, and um, he mentions the Argo, which is obviously a reference to um, Jason. Oh, By the way, Jason's the only single person in Greek mythology to have a normal name. He was also a dick. Um, and I strongly suspect, actually, I think Megara is a reference to Medea. Okay. I don't, I don't recall the name Megara turning up in uh, any of the Greek myths I've read. I could be wrong on that, but I, I think it's a reference to that. I do remember reading up on the... I was like, oh, I really want to find out how the, the Hercules story carried on. Oh, he went mad and killed his wife. Oh, fantastic. Okay. In Greek mythology, Megara was the oldest daughter of Creon, king of Thebes. In reward for Hercules defending Thebes from the min- <laughs> from the minions <laughs> at Orconomus, single-handedly, Creon offered his daughter Megara to Hercules for Hercules to enjoy, like an eclair, and he brought her home to his house, the house of Amphetrion, his dad. She bore him a son and a daughter, whom Hercules killed when Hera struck him with temporary madness. He's making the story seem like some Greek tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> But again, a lot of it, it depends which version you read, because some people, um, when you have um, multiply replicated heroes and characters that keep popping up, it's like the heroes that get portrayed in comic books. Different writers have different takes on them. Some people portray them as as comical or ridiculous, and some people portray them as incredibly heroic, and, and some of them kind of put the slant on the tragedy, and despite the fact that he was incredibly strong, he completely failed to miss the obvious thing that was going to kill him. Um, and um, that's I suppose that's one of the reasons why I find them so fascinating, because you've got different um, different perspectives on mm. what is effectively the same character. Dan, have you ever heard of Asterix? Heard of, but uh, not super familiar with. It's a, a French comic book that was uh, very popular in, like, what, the 60s, 70s, Sean? Uh, 70s, 80s, I'd say. 70s, 80s, okay. Well, I think they were still publishing when I was a kid. So uh, reading a lot when I was a kid, I I was able to sort of get a grounding in kind of like Roman history. And, and uh, its humour was mostly derived from puns. And I think just having read a lot of that, uh, I was in a rarefied scenario of actually not only yeah, getting a background of sort of ancient um, Roman and Greek mythology and uh and and a little bit of uh, roman and greek history and and culture and not just roman greek but spanish and french and ancient britons and and all that but also being used to humor that would kind of require a little digging deeper a little contextual analysis a little decoding again that's um, i'm probably a one percenter on 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 hercules because I'd imagine a lot of other people would leave kind of cold because it it does have kind of it's overly cutesy at the beginning and it's quite wacky as well, which would turn a lot of people off. Uh, so it's 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 really it comes down to James Woods and uh, Susan Egan and Danny DeVito being going to hold the thing together. So you wanna be a hero, kid? Well, whoop de doo. I have been around the block before with blockheads just like you. Each and every one a disappointment. Pain, for which there ain't no ointment. So much for excuses, though a kid is Zeus's, asking me to jump into the fray. My answer is two words. Okay. Oh, oh, you win. Oh, God.
given up hope that someone would come along. A fella who'd ring the bell for once, not the gong. The kind who wins trophies, won't settle for low fees, at least semi-pro fees. But no, I get the greenhorn. I've been out to pasture pound, my ambition gone. Content to spend lazy days and to graze my lawn. But you need an advisor, a sater but wiser, a good merchandiser, and whoa! It goes my ulcer! I'm down to one less hope, and I hope it's you. Go, kid, you're not exactly a dream come true. I trained enough turkeys who never came true. You're my one last hope, so you'll have to do. And ended up a mockery Don't believe the stories that You read on all the crockery To be a true hero kid Is a dying heart Like painting a masterpiece It's a work of heart It takes more than sinew Comes down to what's in you You have to continue to grow Now that's more like it one last shot and my last high note Before that blasted underworld gets my goat My dreams are on you, kid Go make them come true Climb that uphill slope Keep pushing that envelope You're my one last hope and kid It's all to you Because it is leaning on that kind of humor and that more wacky style, which, again, pretty close to where Aladdin was. Yeah. Uh, I think it risks being a place where it can get very hit or, hit or miss, and, and that can change wildly for the, for the individual viewer. So, there, I mean, there are various parts where they're being wacky and funny, and I'm like, eh, okay. And, <laughs> but, but, other parts where, but other parts where I'm laughing really hard. So it, it kind of, uh, it just, when you're going with jokes, then some of them are going to land and some of them aren't. Again, with the puns, though, he could tell you what's a Grecian urn. Here you go, kid. A little Grecian formula. You know, if you get it, you'll go, at best. And really, it's the kind of... It's, it's, uh, it's using the as stepping stones to jump you through the movie. But yeah, I, I do agree with the, what you said earlier, Dan, is in that they could maybe have uh, dialed back on the wacky a bit and uh, uh, made... Well, possibly made Hercules a bit more of a complex character, made him a bit more conflicted, but he's a very simple, very straightforward guy. He is. I, I think really the saving grace for Aladdin that manages to get some of that character drama in, mm. in between all the laughs, and is partially Aladdin himself, his moment to mo- his scene-to-scene motivations are a little bit easier to pick apart. It's whether that's just keeping a lie going yeah. or or trying to survive a really tricky situation or having to measure, like having to weigh the options and kind of actually like use his conscience or 
and even with a wacky character like Genie, Robin Williams has that unique ability to go super sincere and super heartfelt on a mm. dime. Which because he wants something do. very straightforward, which is just freedom. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, you his really motivations feel for are him. basically it's... like yeah, he's kind of um, he's having as much fun as he can. But then the moment that uh, he's actually asked an, an honest question about you know what he'd like is freedom, he just yeah, as you say, turns on a dime. Yeah, and of the two of them, obviously Danny DeVito in this. Is the is the one who has to kind of reconcile his own bitterness and, and inability to move forwards, uh, and and stop dwelling on his past mistakes, and they don't really focus on Phil enough. Yeah, I, I don't think he he is he does seem to be the character that's supposed to, at least partially, fill the role of that Robin Williams wacky yeah char- character known personality type, and I don't think that that his character i'm sure devito probably could have made it work because he can go very sincere and heartfelt as well but i i don't think that they let his character really get to that place there's a couple scenes actually now that when when herc lets him down and he uh and he sort of walks off sort of slump that's uh you you feel for him then but it's almost like it's just a quick beat before the action continues right and and i i mean i really actually like hercules as a character a lot even as simple as he is i think Tate Donovan does a phenomenal job at making him very sincere, or but naive and unsure of himself, and funny when he needs to be. I mean, he hits that perfect sweet spot of being able to sound heroic, but also very human and likable, which mm. is exactly what Hercules should be. And self-conscious with it as well. And that as well, yeah. It's just really great voc- vocal performance by him. Just I- as getting really getting that humor and charm in, even as the leading man hero type, which is tends to be a little bit more straightforward and straight-laced. And uh, young Hercules is played by Josh Keaton, who would later go on to play uh, both Spider-Man and Green Lantern. So uh, uh-huh. it's kind of like hero in training stuff here. His focus, his motivation here seems to be fish out of water, clumsy, overly strong boy, can't seem to find his place. This is, I think, possibly where Disney started resting on its laurels uh, in terms of, right, we need an outsider. Okay, he wants to belong somewhere. And he literally sings a song about, you know, wanting to be somewhere where he belongs, which is, it's, it's actually a lovely heartfelt song, but it could also describes every single Disney outsider, every yeah. single Disney uh, character. Uh, it's almost yeah. like they were, they were in self-parody at this stage, even though they're being earnest. I think the whole teen Hercules section suffers a bit from feeling a bit rushed Mm. because you can tell that they're trying to keep things moving along and I mean they've got to tell this little bit of the story but the actual part of the story they want to tell is where adult adult Hercules and his challenges basically as soon as he gets to Thebes but the beats in the teen section happen so quickly and they're all basically spoken basically spoken character telling you how they feel like, I f- don't feel like I belong here. I would, okay, Hercules says, I want to belong somewhere, and he sings his song, or part of his song. His adopted father tells him where he's from. He goes off. He goes he to the... The temple at Delphi. Yeah, okay, well, he goes to goes to the temple, gets a quick pep talk from Zeus, gets over a surprise really quickly, is immediately on board. Okay, and now I'm going to go do this, and charges off. It it all The beats all happen very, very quickly, and there's not a lot of time to actually let it sit. And most of the information is communicated verbally by just characters saying what they're thinking and how they're feeling, which is not the most interesting way to do it. So I think this little section to me feels like the weakest of the whole thing. But then as soon as it gets past it, I'm back on board again.
There's so many montages in this as well. A lot of time passing is communicated in song. That's true, which is a good way to handle it, I think. So Hercules is a Superman and Thor parable. I now suddenly want to do a trailer where I mash up the uh, Man of Steel trailer with Hercules. Goodbye, my son. He will travel far. He will show them the way. And it's that 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 level of um, uh, being able to deliver exactly the same story to us. Uh, but there's a joyfulness about this, which was obviously absent from um, uh, Man of Steel. I think that the, the right beats are hit in Thor. It manages to balance the funny and significantly the exact same sacrifice happens at the end. Hercules wanders out to meet the Cyclops sent by Hades purposefully to destroy him. But because he's going out in a kind of, oh, I don't even care about this anymore, it's not really a sacrifice. So when he gets flicked backwards, he doesn't die. And that's not the moment. The moment obviously comes later when it's actually directly connected with Meg. But for some reason, it almost seems like Thor decomplicates that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think I see what you mean. That um, Hercules' job is not specifically to um, to, to accomplish wonders as, uh, as, as much as it is to just care about little people, which I suppose is exemplified in, in his journey as at the end he will jump into a river of death uh, for Meg, whereas with Thor, it's he will just go out to prevent further carnage. But it's the it's the same basic story. Hercules in 1997, Superman in 1978, and to a lesser extent in 2013, and Thor in 2011, all grow to love one woman more than their own lives. The failing of the Hercules movie, and the reason Thor goes one better, is that Herc isn't really flawed, aside from being naive. Thor is selfish, cruel, and immature, and thanks to Jane, begins to see value to human existence, which then gets him thinking about the right for all beings to exist, which is a major step towards him being a king and why this development is a big deal for him. Diana is naive, and she is genuinely challenged by Ares when it comes to her relationship with humanity, so it takes Steve Trevor to convince her that there is something worth saving. Hercules is a hell of a guy from childhood onwards, and you're left in no doubt that he would risk everything to save Megara. While that indicates a generally uncomplicated, uninvolved story for this film, fun though it may have been, it also indicates how much better our mythological heroes have it now, 20 plus years after this was released. It does fit together because the idea that, um, that Thor is... Um, proving himself without realizing that that's what he's doing and that's exactly what hercules does he doesn't go in there thinking this is the thing i have to do in order to demonstrate i am heroic and therefore earn my godhood it comes at the point where he's given up trying to prove himself because he's done all the things he thought he was meant to do he's ticked all the right boxes it didn't happen so he's hit rock bottom and it's what they do in both their cases it's what they do when they hit the floor that signifies them as a hero are you uh, all right miss uh... megara my friends call me meg at least they would if i had any friends so <laughs> did they give you a name along with all those rippling pectorals uh, uh, uh i'm um uh, uh, are you always this articulate hercules my <clears throat> my name is hercules <laughs> i think i prefer wonder boy so 
how do you get mixed up with the... Pinhead with hooves? Well, you know how men are. They think no means yes, and get lost means take me, I'm yours. <laughs> Don't worry, Shorty here can explain it to you later. Well, thanks for everything, Herc. It's been a real slice. Wait, um, can we give you a ride? Don't think your Pinto likes me very much. Pegasus? Oh, don't be silly. He'd be more than happy to. Ow. I'll be all right. I'm a big tough girl. I tie my own oh. sandals and everything. <laughs> bye bye, Wonder Boy. Bye. Megara. For the longest time, my absolute favorite Disney female. Still way up the top. Very unusual and very different from uh, every other uh, Disney heroine who had come before. Uh, she's spiky and, to a degree, kind of sharp and unpleasant in, from some people's perspectives. In fact, she may have uh, really um, not washed with some people. She's sarcastic. She's clearly very smart. She's very shapely, but not in that usual um, Disney princess way. She's a woman, not a girl. She's got a Greek figure specifically. Yeah. That um, very curvy, wide hips, small shoulders, small breasts. Very unusually for a Disney uh, heroine, or in fact a Disney hero, she's got a past. And uh, the unfortunate and un unhappy events of that past inform upon her actions within this film. So when she ends up as a betrayer, she's hugely conflicted about it. And uh, she's much more complex than... I mean, most of the females who've come before her. I think that uh, the the idea of her being a woman and not a girl is very specific. Um, if you look at the, the heroines that have kind of led up to this point, Jasmine is um, sort of just coming of age. Belle is very young, Ariel is almost a child, and there were, there were references that were made by the animators of um, Ariel being a girl and um, uh, Belle being a little bit more of a woman, but compared to Meg, she really isn't. As you say, Meg has things which have not just things which have happened to her she has made choices she's made decisions some of them were bad decisions they have led her to a place where she's trapped into making further bad decisions and it it all adds to the idea that she is you know she is a character she's not just a um uh, a face onto which the audience can transfer themselves yeah and that makes it difficult it's awesome if you do click with her and by god I did but if you don't it doesn't always work and that the, the idea of the, the sort of the gothic heroine who was extremely bland for the very reason that they wanted all readers to be able to sort of put themselves in that position and there not really be anything to push them away you take a risk when you create a character like this because there's always the chance that there are people out there who won't connect with her but I mean from my perspective you know what I said about there's certain songs and oh a lot of them are Disney that I can't sing without welling up mm -hmm. and um, I won't say I'm in love is one of them wow far from being an I want song it's an I don't want song yeah that yeah. almost never happens no 
Well, she she's, she doesn't get the I want, does she? Because Hercules no, gets Hercules the I gets want. It's, it's not her story. Because he's straightforward and she's actually actively pulling away from... Uh, yeah, you don't even really... I mean, you want things to work out, work out for Meg, but it's, she never really expresses what she does want. So you're not entirely sure what what that could be. And, and, and it becomes obvious that what she actually wants is simplicity. She's gone through so much complications that um, someone like Hercules, it represents a very safe harbour and very uh, comforting, uncomplicated guy. Indeed. And also, she's very obviously designed on Greek tragic heroines, where things happened that caused them uh, great pain, but the story isn't necessarily about what's happened, um, you know, the first thing that happens that hurts them, or even the second thing. It's the third thing. It's the fourth thing. It's, you know, it's something that demonstrates that their life goes on and on and on and on and on, and they've got to work their way around all these speed bumps. Hmm. So much more relatable than so many other uh, Disney females up to the 90s. Her character is as interesting as, I mean, her story is as interesting as Hercules' is, oh, yeah. even if it's not the one in focus a lot of the time. Uh, what little you get is maybe more interesting, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd much rather have had a lot more of her and a lot less of the friggin' pain and panic. As much as I love Bobcat Goldthwait and, uh, and Matt Frewer, uh, th- there's just a lot of zaniness there which uh, I could in fact they work best when they're up against Meg and she's entirely incredulous to their antics aww how cute a couple of rodents looking for a theme park who you calling a rodent sister I'm a bunny and I'm his gopher I I like Meg's character a lot and the way she's the way she functions in the story. And Susan Egan is obviously crazy talented. I Mm. I think she was the uh, stage performer for Belle in the Broadway musical. Ah. Uh, And I can you can totally hear Belle's register and voice in in there. Uh, I think the only thing and this may be what rubbed some people a little wrong with her as well. It's not necessarily her character personality. It's just that sort of 40s femme fatale performance in the voice and the delivery feels laid on a little thick sometimes it's mm. it's like if jessica rabbit had a hefty dose of sarcastic 90s perpetually unfazed by ev- anything posturing layered on that's just that's just a little too far sometimes like the oh what's the line it's well hurt it's been a real slice, slice. Like, that just that sort of thing that i wish was dialed down maybe 15 <laughs> percent <laughs> I fell in love with her at, at seventeen. I was like, "Oh yes, someone like this would be great." But like, I do love her personality, and I love her. Her character in the story is great. I would not want her gone or made more. Going a little bit further on a character trait than I would like, I say, is way better than not going far enough with yeah, anything. Yeah. I would rather have someone who ends up, uh, to a degree, being a little bit spiky and a bit unpleasant, but that that gives them more scope for change as opposed to being uh, you know let's just try not to offend people with this one yeah and and the fact that she gets introduced with one of my favorite lines from a disney heroine ever i'm a damsel i'm in distress i can handle it (laughs) if there's a prize for rotten judgment i guess i've already won no man is worth the aggravation That's ancient history Been there, done that Don't you think you're kidding? He's the earth and heaven Do you try to keep it hidden? Honey, we can see right oh, through no. your 
You're dying to cry your heart out Jim Cummings, by the way, voice of... Uh, is he Winnie the Pooh as well as Tigger? Yep. Yeah, uh, and Ray in uh, Princess and the Frog. He plays both Nessus, the centaur there, and also the miserable old man when they uh, go to uh, Thebes. Uh, they, that's it. I'm moving to Sparta. That guy. It's, you won't like it. Yeah. <laughs> their, their, their room decoration is Spartan at best. The Hydra battle... Would we say this still works? It's an early implementation of fairly overt CGI. I'm actually impressed it holds up as well as it does. Agreed. They could do far, far better. They could. They could do far, far better now. Yeah. But I am, looking at it now, I am actually very impressed that they managed it. And I, to their credit, I'll, the 30 heads thing would not have been realistically doable mm. in 2D. So it's not just there because, hey, we can make it 3D. It's very much we have a need that our t- traditional technique is not going to achieve. So here's how we're going to be able to do it. There's neat use of, uh, of color and shading and lighting to make the 3D Hydra fit in the flat background. It just, uh, you know, when a lightning bolt sort of cracks across the scenery and it affects the CG model, that just smooths over the cracks in your head and sort of goes, oh yeah, no, that thing's definitely there and Hercules is interacting with it. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that it is 3D and you can tell there's a little bit of a difference when you look at it, mm-hmm. but it definitely doesn't. We're going to be talking about 3D that looks bad later. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think this is quite effective. Yeah. There's an interesting take on marketing here as well, in that they're, they're, they're quite scornful of it and how it sort of uh, tends to envelope the nature of celebrity to the point where who Hercules is is not represented by his merchandising. That's, they're just selling an image of him. It almost seems like the uh, it's a commentary on the over-marketing uh, in the Disney stores of every single one of the characters that was going on around about that time. Every, every one of the popular characters in that uh, they were absolutely everywhere and in every form as well. It's not just that, you know, you can get soft toys of them. You can literally get them on cups, on trainers, shoe, car, clothing line, soft drink. I know the four. The big four of the celebrity endorsement dollar. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) 
But then I think, you know, the, the Simpsons has demonstrated repeatedly that you can bite the hand that feeds you. And as long as it's funny and people are coming and, and you know, paying to laugh at it, they yeah. will let it slide. Absolutely. It doesn't really end up passing commentary on it. There's no, aside from Hercules just kind of like crushing his action figure and just tossing it all aside and going, what's the point of all this? It's all crap. Um, there's never a point where Hercules goes, I have had my soul subdivided up into plastic shite. It, uh, it's just kind of a byproduct of him being a celebrity. Yeah, and, well, and think- a part that he doesn't care about either. Like, that he's wanting to be a hero for his larger goal, for, it's like, gaining entry back to his home. All this stuff, as great as it is, this is not at all what the reason he's doing this. Mm. It feels kind of weird and unnecessary to him. But, I, I mean, looking to history, like, Hercules is the Greek figure is like one of the most prominent faces characters on pottery and such that we've found from like from like Greek history if, if I'm remembering right isn't, isn't he he's like he is he's, he's such a, a prominent he's a very, character yeah he's a it's a very often told story partly because there's so many elements to it all of the the um, the twelve labors and everything, and he, he feeds into other myths as well. So yeah, he does get repeatedly uh, mentioned. And yes, there are <laughs> the Greek equivalent of soda cups all over yes. the place. With so he, his he, face he, since on. he was basically Greek Batman, and we're just yes everywhere. Well, it, yeah, su- Superman in in um, uh, in role, but yeah, in terms of people kept retelling him over and over and over until their heads exploded so prominent in pop culture they're even i guess if even if they're not making a comment on the like emptiness of merchandising today even if they're just kind of using today's merchandising to express that side of the hercules history and how very pop culture prominent he was even that's even that's a little interesting to me i think you hear that sound it's the sound of your freedom fluttering out the window forever I don't care. I'm not going to help you hurt him. Can't believe you're getting so worked up about some guy. This one is different. He's honest and, and he's sweet. Please. He would never do anything to hurt me. He's a guy. Besides, oh, oneness. You can't beat him. He has no weaknesses. The essence of it is that um, the place that he's seeking in the end you can't visualize your place from outside it. It's almost like you don't know where's the right um, the right place for you to be and the right people for you to be with until you're there. And then it clicks and then you know. Um, but I think it does... It follows the idea of each of the, the Disney heroes have had um, a mission to pursue. You know, they've, they've had a goal that they've got to accomplish in order to, uh, to they think, make everything in their life go right. You know, the Beast has to learn to love and Simba has to uh, recognize his his father's greatness within himself and Aladdin has to learn to accept that who he really is is enough he doesn't have to be a prince and Ariel has to convince somebody to fall in love with her um, but the you know having the a mission to, to go forward on is a huge part of how these stories are told but they have to be kept simple it has to be in kind of large blocks for the audience of children who don't really have a great deal in their life in the way of missions to be able to understand 
do you guys know what I mean when I say that it, this feels like uh, Howard Ashman's uh, influence is is there in the score in the soundtrack? The, yes. Um, I mean, there's an obvious straightforward parallel with the, uh, uh, the the chorus girls in Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, effectively stylistically being reprised here, but there's also that that canny, witty verbiage throughout the songs. It's, it's, it goes beyond puns. There's that same... Like, like he had kind of a, a, a twisted sense of humour, and that has sort of worked its way in there as well. Yeah, so, I, I don't know. David Chappelle did a pretty fine job trying to fill the Ashman role Yeah, in this movie. I, I mean, and Mencken does, it's still, is still bringing his A game at this point, no Absolutely, question. Yeah. Lots of great songs. And I like the variety of musical styles for the songs in this mm. film as well. Each one seems to pull from a different kind of era of similarly Broadway or poppy or stagey kind of kind of style of music there's the vaudeville Phil song there's the uh, sort of 50s 60s pop girl ballad of uh, I mean, there's a 50s like, 60s like the sort of feel yeah. to yeah yeah there's much more Broadway I want the like Alan Minkin style song for Hercules's Go the Distance See, I would say I'm in, I'm in love it kind of feels like it's um I want to say 70s? Am I just picking that out of thin air? What, what, what am I trying to sort of... That's, uh, that's as more of a 60s style, I think. That's very close shooter, to Motown. Shooter. It's Motown. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah it's got kind of a... Uh, yeah, absolutely right, yeah. But yeah, I don't feel like we've heard that much variety in styles from song to song in in these films. Maybe ever, mm. but at least not in a while. So, yeah, that's that's an aspect that I still really enjoy. It's, it's not necessarily my favorite. As a collective batch of songs, I don't... But Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, these films are incredibly hard to talk just as a sync. Like, there are no real weaknesses in the songs in those films. But I still have a lot of favorites in this, in uh, Hercules. On that show we recorded back in 2014, we said Hercules himself was a little bit boring and just wanted to be a hero. That's not strictly true, and it does a disservice to many of his positive characteristics, especially those that are often labelled as weaknesses by our culture. As a kid, he starts off mistakenly wanting crowds to cheer when they see his face. This is a childish reversal of his usual experience of people collectively groaning when they see him. However, his seeking popularity is ultimately abandoned when he gets it, and then wonders, what's the point? It's not fulfilling being adored by people who don't know him. He has spent so long trying to sculpt himself into what he perceives the people want as a hero that he hasn't had the time to really establish the man that he is. Does that level of expectation imposed by first society and then oneself sound relatable? Herc mistakenly believes that speaking in a very manly way and flexing his rippling pectorals makes him more desirable to Megara, but we can see his heart isn't in that pantomime and the real version of him comes out when he's talking to her. Yes, he's awkward, but he does recognize that he likes the man he is around her, and he ultimately doesn't have to pretend. Not a lot makes perfect sense in this 1997 movie. If you start pulling at threads of logic, it unravels and becomes a pile of colored wool in your hands. The people he's been trying to help are ultimately stupid, ungrateful, or hysterical. Hercules realizes on some subconscious level that people are collectively shallow and selfish, and it makes being their hero hard. 
My personal take home is that Disney presented us here with a super strong and daring man, but one who is openly uncertain about himself. In an era where James Bond, Batman and every role Gerard Butler has ever played are still somehow cinematic models for manhood, where boys who treat women crappily are positioned as fascinating and desirable, and if they're murderers, dangerous, fascinating and desirable, I find it extremely gratifying to see a man who is strong but gentle, vulnerable, honest, enthusiastic and respectful of women. In the absence of an arc and character growth to rival the best of Disney, the film gives Hercules a lot of busy work, and at the end, it leaves him stripped of the need to be the thing that he's been told to be, that he's built up in his mind he has to be. Ultimately, after the credits roll, he's gone the distance, expectation is satisfied, and Hercules is free to carry on being the good man he was all along. Megara, for her part, is sent to seduce spy on and betray him by the god she is indebted to, with the remit being that this guy is exactly what he appears, a meathead wonderboy. In reality, she has no interest in his hero persona and finds Phil's crappy attitude appropriately distasteful. Philoctetes is emblematic of the behaviours that boys are supposed to admire and replicate if they want to be considered men, and, not coincidentally, most of what he is able to teach Herc is totally useless. Phil teaches him how to lift weights, but not how to be a stand-up guy. In fact, if you want to read this into the ending, by declining Zeus's invitation, Hercules rejects the chance to take his place in the patriarchy and the hegemony of gods and mortals in general. Megara's first assumption about Herc's sweet, innocent farm boy routine is that it's fake. But with a few more encounters, she realizes she has him backwards. It's the meathead that's the mask he wears and the sweetness that's real. Ultimately, she finds herself drawn to him for who he is, not who he says he wants to be. And not at all because he's a demigod. He doesn't have to try to win her over, and she isn't a prize. She spots that he's clumsy and shy, and like her, lonely. He hasn't experienced the betrayal that she has. In effect, she sees him as a possibility of returning to a time when she was less cynical without having to give up who she is, fundamentally. Effectively, there's never a moment when she isn't in the driver's seat in terms of their relationship, and that is a rare and beautiful thing in cinema. She ends up lowering the shield she's built up around herself to shut out further pain, and allows herself to care about his future happiness without her, which is how she is able to say goodbye with a sense of completion. So if you're looking for an arc in this film, the golden Hercules hero figure persona was always just a front and a cover. The journey is most definitely Meg's. And now, an excerpt from an audiobook. Gwen ducked under the final archway and put Robin down onto unsteady legs. The moonlight shone through the windows and large gaps in the ceiling, and up above them, at the top of the stairs, stood the sword. Together this time. That was my idea too. The pair of them walked up, one foot after the other, through the moonbeams, their chained hands almost touching. Their steps were labored with exhaustion and pain, yet awkward, with a childlike tentativeness. They circled the stone and slowly reached out to grasp the hilt together. Their fingers tightened, and they felt the blade give ever so slightly 
Both of them gasped a little. Gwendolyn gathered her strength, glancing down at Robin, and they breathed deeply and pulled with all of their combined might. Nothing happened. The sword stood fast. Oh. Oh. I thought that would work. It really did. It just made sense. Why isn't it working? Try again. Robin hopped up on the stone and planted his feet, gripping the crossguard and pulling up hard. Gwen leaned her full weight away, her fingers clinging to the hilt. Come on! Come on! Come on, you bastard! We need you! Very much inspired by the Disney 90s renaissance, The Princess Thieves, a story of bungled royal kidnapping, an enchanted sword, romance, responsibility, and revolution. It's available in audiobook form on Bandcamp and on Amazon in Kindle and paperback format. Written and produced by myself, Alexander Shaw, and voiced by my wonderful cast. I can understand why the people didn't take this to their hearts and why it's been largely forgotten. I can completely understand that. To me, though, it does feel very special. And um, I'm happy to be one of the few people who uh, really kind of keeps it close. So, let's see, Pocahontas earned around $350 million, which was way down from Lion yeah, King. This one was like $252 million. Yeah, I mean, Hunchback was down, was close to Pocahontas, around 325 but this one dropped down to 250 and Yeah. I mean, the over the course of just four films, that's a really steep drop-off, and you know the executives had to be feeling some anxiety around this point. It did rise up a bit with Mulan, but uh, they, they were... Um, th- there was a certain feeling of, like, a, bo- a boundary had been crossed at this stage, and they weren't quite sure how to go back to it. Yeah, and they had ramped up to a very large size by this point as well, especially yeah. with Lion King. They had several studios going at once. They had the team working out in france they had the team in uh, orlando in florida they had their large studio still in california which you can tell with that little interview bit with andreas deja saying that he now has three or four times as many people under him yeah. working on this film just so they can crank him out fast that disney had staffed up very big and these numbers definitely weren't going to continue sustaining that yeah I think in retrospect, they were actually, if you look at the, the, the makeup of it and, and, and how it's put together, while it does follow a lot of Disney tropes, especially 90s Disney tropes, they're brave and they take risks in a way that uh, in the, the years to come, they really wouldn't take risks. They actually um, uh, shove the, uh, the, the coming movies, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, right into the middle in an attempt to basically make something so mediocre that it will match uh, DreamWorks output. Yeah, it's a great looking movie too. I I don't have it on Blu-ray yet, but I really want to because okay, I yeah. especially think everything on uh, Olympus, that's the 
vibrant colors are going to yeah. look incredible. It's it, a really it cool, unique visual style this film has. All of the uh, the, the scenes which uh, uh, combine uh, CG and cell animation actually are some of the best because they've got a, a sort of wonderful sheen to the uh, the CG that makes it look like um, like the the urn at the beginning, which the uh, the muses are painted on. That looks absolutely gorgeous. The yeah. uh, the hydra, as I said before, that that has a, a real kind of uh, a body to it. And aside from like one or two shots when it's chasing Hercules across what appears to be an infinite radial plane, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it it really does feel uh, like a, a tangible, credible threat. Yeah, especially if you crank up the sound and it's got this sort of kind of evil, like like you're being attacked by a thousand enormous rattlesnakes. But uh, if, yeah, if for no other reason, watch it because James Woods does his incredible character in oh, it, and yeah. then stay for everything else that's good. Absolutely, yeah, James. Yeah, Hades is the absolute um, uh, gem of this for me. Like I said, if you you took Hades out, it would be a lot less compelling. If you took Hades and Megara out, it would be very unremarkable. Or yeah. if you made them uh, just standard performances, but with the inclusion of them, it, it has some some real spikes in quality, which uh, which make it a unique, slightly more edgy, uncomfortable, well-meaning, smart, distracting, catchy, yet too easily dismissed offering in the Disney canon. It wears its Rocky sports movie influences on its sleeve. And it attempts to craft the superhero movie just a few years before the superhero movie became the thing we wanted to watch. It lacks depth and true drama, but it has yearning. And some people may respond very well to that. dreamed of but a life without Meg even an immortal life would be empty I I wish to stay on earth with her I finally know where I belong back next week with Mulan I've been Alex Shaw I've been Sharon Shaw and School's Out A shot from the mountain tops A star is born It's a time for pulling out the stops A star is born Only hit it with a high left hand A kid can shine through the sing the song I'm on your heart When a star is born A star
from the mountain tops. A star is born. It's a time for pulling out the stops. A star is born. Honey, here's with a high As a bonus, here is the Spanish language version of Go the Distance. It's called No Importa la Distancia, and this version is sung by David Bisbal.
It's, 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 a, it's a superhero retelling, and at the time, the only the best Superman film that had ever come out was Superman One, and there really wasn't that much in the way of superhero movies at the time. And now we've got a lot more complexity in our heroes. It's almost like if they made Hercules today, they would be required to make him more complex. Huh, hang on, they did make Hercules today. <laughs> Is the Rock version more complex than this? I don't know. I, don't I suspect think so. the rock version is less complex. 